And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on, and while Honda won't be on the Formula One grid in 2022, or at least not in name, its fourth foray into Grand Prix racing yielded Max Verstappen's Drivers' Championship. But how did Honda turn a disaster of the McLaren years into this triumph, and what went so catastrophically wrong in the early years of its return? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how are you? First podcast appearance of the year. You're in your COVID recovery cell at the moment, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've ended my uh, period of mandatory isolation now. Um, I am uh, definitely, definitely on the road to, to full recovery. All symptoms have now passed. So now I'm just uh, a little bit tired and a little bit lacking in energy. But I'm hoping that getting out and about again will help revive that. And what better way to kickstart my recovery properly than talking about the single topic I'm allowed to talk about in Formula One, which is Honda. Yeah, you are one of the world's leading Honda F1 experts, I would say. Sorry, you look a bit offended by that. You are the world's leading Honda F1 expert, obviously. No, I was just, I was just thinking, it's, um, I remember something that the, uh, the excellent British photographer Jacob Ebrey once told me, which is that uh, even in a class of one, it's still a class victory. So... That's what I was thinking of there when you said that I am one of the foremost Honda F1 journalists. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've got another Honda F1 expert in Mark Hughes. Ever won a one-class race? Um, no, I don't think I have. I think there was always um, more than more than one. But I mean, we we allow Scott is allowed to talk about other entities, isn't he? He doesn't just talk about Honda. I've, I've heard him talk about other things. I, I think it's fair to say that Honda is the only topic that I approach any level of authority in formula one so and, I, and i'm happy with that the the joke for the last well however long it's been since we knew honda was leaving the last 18 months has been that by the time 2022 comes around i'm going to be out of a job so we're in 2022 now and i'm painfully 
uh, worried every single time I see a, a message or or an email from the likes of Glenn Freeman and Andrew Vandenberg thinking, this is it, my time's up now, they've realised Honda's left and I am absolutely screwed. <laughs> well, it's as good a time as any to do your farewell podcast then in that uh, <laughs> in that case. But no, I'm sure you've got a little bit to offer in the coming year, but for now we are going to focus on Honda. Just before we get onto that in depth, there has been one early piece of news in 2022 that we should briefly talk about first. Slight Honda link, because he did used to work for Honda in Formula One, and that's Otmar Safnauer's departure as team principal of Aston Martin that was announced last week. What do you make of that, Mark? Um, I'm surprised that it took as long to happen as it did, actually, um, because of the there's a pretty big culture clash between him and uh, the team's owner, Lawrence Stroll, and Otmar was an incredibly safe pair of hands in guiding that team back in its Force India days through some extreme financial difficulties and still kept the, the core of people there and kept everything functioning and was a, a you know a big part of, of why that team achieved so much um, on, on so little. And considerable management skill and has a nice personal touch, approachable, friendly, down to earth. And he, that engendered a loyalty in it. And he had the respect of the engineers because he's from an engineering background himself. But the dynamics changed completely with the, with its, um, with the teams you know, morphing into Aston Martin under Lawrence Stroll, who's you know, providing the money for a big upgrade and um, wants to make the team into a serious contender and he's used to success and he wants it quickly. You know, that's, that's, the, uh, so the, the sort of understanding and diplomatic people skills of somebody like Atmar are perhaps no longer considered appropriate for the fast track that I think Lawrence uh, expects. And um, the, the disappointment of this of the 21 season, I think um, his days were always really numbered because Lawrence would be looking to see whose fault it was. And so the, you know, the ball would have uh, fallen into Atmar's court. And uh, I think that's how it's played out. It feels a little bit like a, a loss for Aston Martin, I would say. It's quite easy to underestimate Otmar because his kind of public persona, actually his private persona, is quite an affable sort of character. But he's got a very broad skill set, a lot of experience. He's He is good at dealing with management and the shop floor, shall we say. So that's a really, really difficult set of skills to replace. And actually looking at the potential people out there who could slot into that role, there's not very many people with F1 team principal CVs around the place. There's not very many if, if any at all, that, that come to, to that level. So, yeah, very interesting to see what direction they go in with Otmar. But I think the writing was on the wall when he was asked about the possibility of that, them bringing in a, a group CEO earlier last year. He denied it, and it then did happen with Martin Whitmarsh in, and he didn't deny it because he didn't want people to know about it. He denied it because he didn't know about it. So I think it was fairly clear the writing was on the wall from that point. What do you think of the question of replacing Otmar, Scott? Tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, it's very tricky. I don't really see um, who the obvious candidate is and I wouldn't rule out someone left field either from elsewhere in motorsport or even potentially from Lawrence Stroll's various business connections. It's We've seen that a couple of teams have had success going down the non-F1 route with McLaren and Andreas Seidel, for example, and Williams is obviously hedging its bets on Jos Capito. Um so it's possible that Aston Martin will do something similar and Lawrence will will think, okay, I need someone, you know, I want a, I want a big name. I want someone that's going to make a splash. Or he'll say, I want someone that knows how to run a business. And then he'll look at it from that point of view, from, from his external connections. So I honestly have no idea who it will be. I just know 
I completely agree that it's a difficult one to to replace because he's got a great skill set, Otmar, but he also engendered a lot of loyalty in that team. Um, if you look at when they were going through that Force India spell, I remember Otmar saying that the likes of him and Andy Green had offers to leave and they, they chose not to. And now, well, one half of that axis is is out. What does it mean for guys like Andy Green and then any of the other people? Were you know were they they were loyal to Team Silverstone and Otmar was part of that group for a very long time. So I think it's very very tricky and it's an important appointment now for Aston Martin because they're in this transitional phase where they're laying the groundwork to become a world championship winning team and the team boss is obviously going to be a key part of not just creating that vision but implementing it so if they pick the wrong person to replace Otmar then there's a chance that this very very important building phase for the team is going to be undermined. Well they'll certainly have been working for quite a while on how they replace him what the approach that's taken is so let's see what happens in, in the coming weeks and months in terms of putting in a new team principal it'll be interesting to see what profile of team principal they go for not in terms of how well known they are but more in terms of what their skill set is whether they let Martin Whitmarsh deal with more of the the sort of high-end CEO-y sort of stuff and then have more of a down-to-earth team principal should we say who's much more focused on running the whole race team and the design side and that side of things rather than the broader company interesting to see what they are going to do but certainly I think Aston Martin are going to miss Otmar Safnauer but Scott how about you coming back to Honda are you going to miss Honda? (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's a very very good segue well done ed um yeah i think i will i think on a personal level um i you know i joked before about how it's the only subject i'm allowed to talk about and that 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 comes from when i when when i moved into formula one full-time in 2018 i was moving in uh to a, a, a world where my colleagues were very very experienced much more experienced than i was and i was obviously not going to try and mess with that I was going to try and look for other ways in which I could improve the coverage and complement what they were doing and as it happened the opportunity that I had to get into Formula One journalism was replacing someone who was the 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 point guy with with Honda basically so that and and no one I felt really covered Honda in much detail so I quickly realized that that was an opportunity to um to distinguish myself basically as a Formula One journalist. And what I'm very happy to say and, and proud of is that Honda were always really generous in return. They they recognised the job I was trying to do. They appreciated that I was giving them time that perhaps others weren't. And they were always generous with their time, whether it was speaking to guys like Toharo Tanabe, the technical director, or Masashi Yamamoto, the managing director. I, I just thought they were really good good people to work with. And it was very interesting to chart their their story. I, I feel like I got a very good appreciation for the emotion that they went through, even though I wasn't there when it was really bad. I was there when they were just coming out of it. And I was there when they were getting better and scored their first win and put together their first championship challenge. So I saw what it meant to them firsthand. And for that reason, I think I know... I have a very good understanding of how much it hurt when Honda in Japan pulled the plug and said that the project was going to an end. I know that it really, really hurt the people in the racing division, um, whether that was at Sakura or in Milton Keynes, the guys' track side. Um, it was really hard for them to take. So I think I will miss them. They've done a lot for me. Um, they've been very good people to work with and um, just good people as well as what they contributed to Formula One. I um, I, I wrote a feature on the sort of Honda transformation and 
for that, I interviewed Tanabe and Yamamoto. And this particular anecdote from the start of that interview didn't make it into the feature, but it it's just quite amusing because I, I think it says a lot about Honda and also about them as people. But I'll speak, I, I opened my interview with Tanabe. Um, I asked him to rate the Honda project out of 10 um, at the start in 2015 when he came in, which was for the start of the 2018 season, and then where it was at the end in 2021. And he paused for a while, and then he answered, or started to answer, and he said if basically he wanted to set the entry point of the project as zero, just because that was, obviously, the project didn't exist. Not He wasn't having a dig at it, he was saying zero is the starting point. But then he paused, and he smiled, and he, holding his hand out, as if to signify sort of ground zero, he then went and then minus and and just had a little smile on his face. And I liked it because it was a disarming little comment. It showed how far Honda's come because they're able to look back on that miserable period from 2015 to 17 and sort of joke about it a little bit. But I also just like the personal touch. You know, we it's very easy to, if you just see a guy like Tanabe and um, you think, oh, he's just um, a very stoic individual, um, but there's a lot of um, humanity behind it as um, behind it as well. Um, I don't know if you're comfortable uh, sharing your similar story, Mark, but I remember telling you that in Abu Dhabi, and I think you had quite a good uh, story of someone from Honda that was um, just showed the um, the human, the lighter side of what they're like sometimes. Yeah, that was uh, Kiyuchi. So that was in the uh, the previous Honda program, and it was the last year of the V10s, and they were trying to get to a thousand horsepower before the end of the season. And um, they took us on a little factory tour before the Japanese Grand Prix, and uh, we actually, you know, went in and saw them uh, guy building an engine up, you know, with the, with the block there and the heads and the valves, and we actually saw it all being put together. And then in the um, Early laps of the Japanese Grand Prix, um, uh, it was uh, Sato. Uh, he, um, his engine blew after about, I think, seven or eight laps. And the after the race finished, I went down to find Kyuchi and I said, do, do you know anything about yet? Any 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 clues as to what happened with, um, with, with the engine? And he said, uh, yes, um, y- your fault. And I said, my fault? He said, yes. I said, oh, okay. Why is that? He said, ah, when you were in the engine shop, um, the guy building the engine looked around and said, why John Lennon in my workshop? And uh, he forgot to tighten the bolt. I said, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, right. <laughs> For those wondering about that, the context of that one, uh, Mark does bear a little bit of a resemblance to the, the legendary John Lennon. Not as Giorgio Piola suggested last year, Elton John, though. <laughs> Very, di- very different choice of glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ch- change of style, that could be a... <laughs> spangly, spangly <laughs> style ones. But it's a good reminder there is a human side behind this and a huge number of people have put a lot of effort into this Honda turnaround, which is why we think it's a story worth telling. So, Scott, let's go back to the beginning. 2015, Honda's arrival powering McLaren. On paper, it sounded great, didn't it? The revival of the alliance that dominated F1 from 1988 to 1991, a works deal with the world's biggest engine manufacturer, the publicly stated ambition of being right up there with hybrid-era standard set of Mercedes in that first season. So how did that translate into such an unreliable, uncompetitive and unimpressive season? It was. Uh, it was... <laughs> It, it fell so short, so far short of those standards and expectations. And 
we en- ended up in um in hindsight just the absolute perfect um sort of warning of what was to come with that end of 2014 Abu Dhabi test um which I'm calling it a test because other cars and teams were testing at the event. McLaren and Honda didn't do anything remotely resembling testing. I think they managed, was it? I think officially they had five or six laps over the two days, but no lap time set. And it was basically Stoffel Van Dorn. It was just a contest to see how far he could get down or out of the pit lane before the thing broke down. But they'd put this, um, they d- d- developed like the mule car so to 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 house the uh, an an earlier version of the the Honda hybrid before it ran on track in 2015 um i'm forgetting what it's called but there's um there's a there's a brilliant article on the the race website that 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 mark did on um the mclaren like mclaren's role basically in 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 honda's problems so but basically i think you can probably summarize it as as two things the first is that it was effectively undercooked because it came in Honda came in at McLaren's requirement a year earlier than planned, which I think just meant that they the the already aggressive timescale was much was 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 condensed and even and even more difficult to manage. But the other part of it was people might remember the often talked about size zero concept, which is the idea of ultra tight packaging maximizing the aero uh, benefit and the opportunities that you'd have as a result of that, and that led to all sorts of design compromises that Mark's probably in a better place to, to to explain that ultimately just meant that the engine was fundamentally unreliable and underpowered. So I think they just sort of they 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 set out they set out their stall badly. And I think linked in with this, that's on the engine side. I think also just from a structural or management composition point of view, I think the way that they wanted to divide things up in terms of McLaren taking care of anything that's related to politics and and all of this was a little bit flawed because but the impression I've had is certainly the Honda reflects on that McLaren situation as being one where they just didn't have their management and technical leadership team in in the right way uh, set up in the right way um and I think that stayed with them for the entirety of that three year partnership with McLaren I don't think Honda ever felt empowered enough to have whatever structure they had um in in the in in the way they really needed it in, in hindsight so i think they sort of locked themselves into a a setup that was um just compromised in every possible way in terms of personnel technic uh, the technical side absolutely everything yeah, and that was reflected in the problems they had that year there were so many of them weren't there the the famous size zero car led to some cooling problems as well the mguk kept failing the airs wasn't efficient. They had the problem with the turbo and the compressor. Just about everything. It was, Mark, pretty clear that, that I think undercooked is the right word because they were just not ready in any area, were they? Yeah, and it's also what um, we shouldn't forget is that how strict the initial uh, engine freeze regulations were. So there, were, there, was, there was a lot that they understood after the initial disaster needed to be done, but which they couldn't do until next in the following season. Um, so it basically had a, a tiny turbo and the idea was that it would run it at, at the maximum revs that you were allowed on that shaft, which was 120,000 revs. And most teams had a bigger turbo that ran lower revs than that. And, um, but they couldn't run it at those maximum revs. Um, so it, it just became extremely, uh, inefficient there. And the, um, the MG, 
MGUH couldn't do much at the, the speeds of having to run it at. So they had the, the small turbo without the compensating rev, so it had no power. It it couldn't, it, you know, it, it couldn't recharge itself very well. Um, but they were stuck with it because they were stuck with the basic architecture of, of, of what they'd homologated. And so, yes, it was, they, they, they were all the sorts of things that would have typically been discovered on the test bed, you know, in, in the, in, in what should have been the, the preparation year before they actually went racing. So you, what you, what you were seeing was their uh, R and D program um, that would normally be done at the factory in, in, in a dyno cell somewhere you were seeing it in, in out in public every two weeks. And it was um, very humiliating for them. Yeah. And it did start to become a little bit of a joke that year, the whole Honda underperformance, but to be fair, I think the wider world, while it was felt to be disastrous, there was a fair amount of patience and willingness to let Honda kind of work through it, wasn't there? There's still a feeling that this McLaren-Honda partnership would work in the end. Obviously, there was extra attention on it because they had Alonso and Button, the two world champion drivers. So the expectations were sky high. And yeah, to be fair, they uh, they at least showed they, they understood what the problems that they were suffering were. And actually, Mark, there were reasons to be encouraged by the progress made in 2016, weren't there? McLaren jumped from ninth to sixth in the constructors. The reliability and performance of the engine improved. And the results weren't stellar, but the trend was upward. The points were consistent. So what was Honda doing right there? Yeah, they, they were still, um, it was still the uh, size zero concept, which basically had the um, compressor and a turbine split, as they are on the Mercedes, but not um, with the compressor and the turbine at either end. Instead, they were uh, close together and within the V of the engine itself, with the two, that, with the two banks of the, the engine, um, which that sort of limited how big you could make your turbo. And that, it turned out, was what was limiting about that whole concept because as the um, energy efficiency improved, you could justify a bigger and bigger turbo and eventually the efficiency improved to, to such an extent the, the the turbo you could justify the size of turbo you could justify um no longer fitted in between the, the the v so that's what they had to later try to accomplish with um accommodate in 2017 but in 2016 was just a basically was the upgrade of the 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 original unit which they would taken the problem areas out whilst retaining the, the same basic concept and complete redesign of the turbo and the mguh so that the maximum shaft revs it was no longer so inefficient and it could be run at those revs and it gives less disastrously early clipping which had been the key limitation of the 15 engine and um you know that 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 just allowed that what was a not a disastrous basic concept but turned out not to be the ultimate one but it wasn't disastrous in a conceptual sense it was just as i say the early development pangs that would have normally been discovered in the um you know on a test cell rather than the track they they were put right for 2016 so it's the it's the engine that they would have been able to do probably halfway through 2015 if they'd been allowed to do it by the regulations and there was certainly broad improvement everywhere wasn't it the airs was a lot stronger the combustion efficiency was worked on a bit more power they had a final upgrade i think malaysia time at the end of the year that was a good start the engine was a little bit heavy that was one of the the problems and the center of gravity wasn't great but it was a yeah encouraging step so after all that encouraging progress, Scott, we head into 2017, lots of McLaren-Honda optimism, and McLaren did see it very much as a make-or-break year for that Honda relationship as well. And then, of course, it was clear pretty much from pre-season testing that the new engine was not going to be the success that it needed to be. 
No, well, with um, with how much was being changed that and this all new concept, I think Honda knew that uh, Honda knew that there was potential for things to go wrong because um, by definition, when you're doing something completely new, that 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 brings with it new risks and challenges and 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 whatnot. So, having reached the maximum of uh, the the ultimately limited initial concept, even though it was improved in sixteen to to make the steps that they really needed, Honda knew that it needed um, it needed a big change. That came with this um, with 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 this switch, as Mark was explaining b- b- before. Um, more rather than going for the sort of the different way of doing what Mercedes was doing, it was basically okay. Well, we've seen that this works, so we're going to do our best approximation of that, and then try and do a better job with that architecture. But the problem was that when they went into actually running the engine on track, all of this promise that they'd seen on the dyno basically and in their simulations disappeared because I think it was at the, the preseason testing was a disaster for starters. And it was initially because um, they had a problem with the, uh, with, with the oil tank, which was related, related to the fact that the way that one of the key differences between Honda, when it was developing with McLaren and when it was late latterly developing with Toro Rosso and then Red Bull is, Unlike with Red Bull, um, the the dyno work that Honda could do with McLaren was was quite limited, and they couldn't simulate the the the, um, the effect of actually being in a in in a complete car on on track. So when they got to testing in seventeen, basically the vibrations that they experienced with the car actually running on track caused the caused problems with with, with the oil tank. And while that was quite easy for them to identify and solve, they lost an um, they lost an enormous amount of um, testing mileage or on track or track running during this period. So that put them massively behind. So when the season started in earnest and they actually were able to to run the car, they suddenly discovered they had this colossal MGUH problem, and there were other issues as as well. But it really came down to to the MGUH, a problem that Honda were pretty sure they would have been able to identify quite early in the running at Barcelona if they'd done a normal amount of, of testing, effectively. Um, the problem is they were discovering it late. And I think the Bahrain weekend was particularly bad for this in 2017. And um, Masato Yamamoto, the managing director of the project, remembers that as the, that was for him the worst moment of the entire project. I can't remember how many MGH failures they had in one weekend. I think it might have been, it was, I think it was at least three. And basically, they were at a point early in the season where the MGUH couldn't do more than two or three Grand Prix, which is insane for a for a for a product or component rather that needed to even then would have needed to do what six full Grand Prix weekends, seven if you're trying to avoid a a, a penalty through the season. So this high revving, ultra complex component was something that Honda just had no real mastery of, and it. It was something that they chipped away at, chipped away at, chipped away at through the course of 17. And this bold new power unit concept came with all sorts of problems, but it was also absolutely essential for Honda being able to improve its core performance. So as 17 progresses, they 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 are gradually getting better, but not at the rate McLaren needed. And I think it was around spa time where... I think it got really silly because they were aiming for what I think they were calling spec four, but they missed their own self-imposed deadline for it. 
So they introduced, I think, what they called free, Spec 3.5 or Spec 3.6. And then the following weekend, they had Spec 3.6 or 3.7. And like this was how, this is why it was open to ridicule because you just had this project, pro, project that was just sort of desperately trying to improve, but never quite able to make the steps it wanted. So that season was, I mean, there was an incredible irony around this is that this was obviously what caused McLaren to just completely lose all faith and the total and final collapse of the partnership. But it was also absolutely everything that needed to happen for Honda to be in a position to eventually make proper progress with its power unit. It was just this, it came in this really weird way that meant that any progress Honda would make in the future couldn't possibly be with McLaren because the the union at this point was absolutely broken beyond repair. Well, of course, coming back to that timing you were talking about, about those quick introduction of new uh, new engine specs, this was all down to the whole way the, the contract was formulated because McLaren went into the year, as I said, thinking this is going to be make or break. But they knew that the key thing was always going to be, I think it was end of August, very start of September was the cutoff point, which was basically Spa, Monza time, I think, sort of basically for the start of the Monza weekend. So were, there, were certain performance levels in the engine not delivered at that point? That was the point where McLaren had the contractual freedom. So quite some time before this, McLaren knew this was kind of the way it was going. And I think Honda were sort of throwing the kitchen sink at trying to make it work, hence perhaps some slightly questionable uh, aggressiveness in their in their decisions. But that was because they knew what McLaren was was planning to do. So yeah, that that just built up into kind of a critical mass. And of course, it was Singapore, which was, I think, the race after Monza, that they had the announcement of all the engine shuffles and that kind of thing that we'll be talking about later. But yeah, it was it was a, a, just a, an amazing time. And of course, remember at this point, McLaren was still seen as the, the team that was being held back with Honda entirely to blame for all of its shortcomings. And while Honda was certainly struggling, history would uh, will tell us now that it wasn't quite that straightforward. But yeah, lo- loads of problems there. But it was clear, Mark, that McLaren knew from early on in 2017 they needed to part company with Honda. In retrospect now, the decision can look quite stupid, but do you think, A, McLaren were correct then to make that decision, and B, do you think that actually it was necessary for there to be a break in order for Honda to make the progress because there was just something fundamental with the way it worked with McLaren that wasn't right for them? The relationship didn't work. The relationship was broken, and um, yeah, I think I guess if uh, if you could wind the clock back if um if mclaren could wind the clock back they they would have not done that but it's 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 easy to say that when you're in the moment of the, of that relationship and it's broken and you don't have any faith in the other in the other partner um you know it, it was inevitable really and it it was it was clear a long time before it was announced that it was wasn't ever going to run its course the strain that this put on the the Honda project boss, bosses would have been absolutely enormous because they were on the it was um it was Hasegawa wasn't it at this point in 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 2017 it was Arai to begin with wasn't it then then Hasegawa-san and i remember so many so many times during that first sort of 7 months of the seven, 2017 season just that Honda always talking about you know the fact that they would they they knew they had to convince McLaren and it became a point maybe probably around June probably July with that deadline that you mentioned Ed looming that Honda's messaging or Hasegawa's messaging became we're still trying we're still trying we're still trying but I don't know if it'll be enough so Honda is still basically 
throwing everything at it, trying to get the upgrades through, sometimes falling short, sometimes making steps, desperately trying to convince McLaren. At this point, you know, in the background, the 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 project, the future, the sorry, the project's future is absolutely in the balance with questions from the the board about whether it should continue. The trackside team and the team at Sakura are desperately trying to improve things, and just I can only imagine a feeling of total helplessness starting to engulf the project the longer 2017 went on. Yeah, and of course, with the fact that the McLaren relationship was heading towards termination, there was then the big question of the Honda future. Of course, we'll get onto that in a moment, but Scott, there's a brief interesting tangent we can go off down here, which is often forgotten because Sauber actually agreed a deal to run Honda engines in 2018. That was announced at the end of April 2017. So at that time, it was going to be a second supply alongside the McLaren deal that could have continued in 18, but ultimately didn't. That deal was then cancelled about three months later. I think uh, team boss Fred Vasseur said it was on his first day. So what exactly happened there? Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing what if, isn't it? I mean, imagine what the fortunes of those respective uh, organisations would have been had that materialized Sauber partnering with Honda um Toro Rosso maybe never getting involved with Honda as a result never leads to the Red Bull years it's a it's an amazing forgotten side story that as you're you're right for a few months was absolutely happening but it was um I think it was basically that when the deal was uh when when the deal was originally done obviously Sauber were trying to emerge still from probably the darkest times of the the team's history all the financial problems and stuff like this they were 2017 would have been the year i think they were using was it the year old ferrari engine i think they had was it ericsson and verline were the two drivers and it was just like a proper back of the grid <laughs> just like a really rubbish season um um so i think it was just about looking for for, for different ways to make it work but then obviously the i think it's fair to say that the perceived direction that that team needed to take to improve its own trajectory changed and they wanted to pursue this closer alliance with ferrari which meant an up to date engine deal they wanted to have the alfa romeo sponsorship as well which was uh, which was tied to 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 all of that so um it felt like it was basically that the Honda idea was a nice one in principle, but when Sauber basically rejigged, and as you say, Vasseur describes it as being basically something he did on his first day, I think the new management looked at it and just went, if we want to revive this project, we need to fix, um, we need a bigger sort of plan effectively and a wider collaboration. And we're not going to get that by being a customer of the worst engine on the grid. Yeah, and you'd have to say there's every chance that had the Sauber Honda thing happened let's say it was just Sauber Honda in 2018 I'm not entirely convinced that things would have gone well for Honda there because Sauber really wasn't in a position to be the ideal partner there whereas actually what did happen did prove to work very well so to come back to the way history did play out Mark Honda came close to pulling out after the McLaren partnership fell apart they did in the end decide to link up with Toro Rosso in 2018 it did come down to quite a a binary choice between go or press on with Toro Rosso in the hope of the Red Bull connection. Obviously, it was significant because Toro Rosso was the expeditionary force for Red Bull, as it were. So a shrewd move across the board, wasn't it? It created a low-key, low-expectations opportunity for Red Bull to test the waters with Honda. 
Yeah, that Toro Rosso deal was a brilliant solution um, for everyone, really. It took the heat out of the pressure to be fighting for race wins when they clearly weren't ready. And Because, you know, rightly or wrongly, as you touched upon, McLaren felt it was a race-winning operation being held back by Honda. And at Toro Rosso, the dynamic was very different. And were, Honda was treated with much more respect and openness. And it was a lovely dynamic and, and remains so. The, 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 that little junior arm of, of Red Bull, I think, Honda is still yeah, very, very... Um, has a really um, great relationship, very personal and, and, and lovely dynamic. Um, and this all happened as the, the the power unit itself was making really useful gains, and it was a, a lovely compact unit, but it was also it was becoming more reliable and more powerful. And this was also at the, just at the moment the Red Bull was at peak dissatisfaction with, with Renault, and I recall talking to Christian Horner in Bahrain that year, so very early in the season, and him saying, well, you know, because we can see both they're both engines, he said, well, there's only 13 horsepower in favour of the Renault at the moment, but we know there's a lot more coming from the Honda. So, you know, he was saying off the record at that point, he says, it's a no-brainer. We'll be going with Honda because it's it's just, you know, everything everything we ask for is being done and it's it's it, the progress is being made and it's you know the, the whole the whole thing came together at the perfect time really i think the red bull side were able to play um the relationship with honda perfectly as well you could see how broken honda were at the end of that mclaren um partnership so red bull basically threw everything at making sure that they treated honda the the right way and that was that was i want to say little things but it because it doesn't really sound like anything massive, but it's like guys like Horner and Marco going to the the Honda factory in Japan and flying out to Japan to see stuff and speak to people. Um, it's things like in in 2017 and when Honda were considering the future of the program. It's you know before Marco gets involved or anything like that. It's it's Tost speaking to Honda board members and and Franz Tost being the one that told or advocated Honda continue. And what an unlikely saviour of the Honda project. <laughs> if you think of everything that, that they've gone on to achieve with Red Bull, it really is it, it's so easy to overlook the role that Tost and Toro Rosso played in salvaging um, the partnership because they gave Honda confidence, um, autonomy. They gave Honda a bit of self-belief again. and. I think it was it was super important both on track and off track. We saw things like the first major engine upgrade of of 2018 that Honda produced was already enough. That was that was that that immediate. I think that was the thing. Was the first upgrade of 18 was the one that hit the target that they'd set out. And obviously we we we've we talked a bit before about how they were missing targets all the time with McLaren. But the first one they set out with Red Bull, they met. Basically, Toro Rosso saw it, Red Bull saw it, so it was it was worth committing to. Toro Rosso also had an attitude of, if you want us to compromise our season by taking grid penalties so that you can bring upgrades, do it. At, just, just go for it. We will do what you need. And it was such a big departure from that McLaren era of you do what we want and then you deal with it and also you deal with the consequences. It became such a more collaborative effort. And Honda by the end of 2021 reflected on that Toro Rosso season as it, they 
they felt that they worked as closely with Toro Rosso. It was basically near as makes no difference a works program. It was very similar to how some of the personnel remember the final years of the Honda Works team uh, in 2008, just in terms of the chassis engine integration. And obviously it wasn't as optimized as it could be because it was quite late, but that attitude and the communication, I think, was exactly what Honda needed at the time. And like I say, was, I think, quite different to what they had before. Yeah, I remember speaking to James Key at pre-season testing and him talking about how that communication and the, the the kind of shared culture they were trying to create was really important. And trying to, I think if memory serves, they they slightly lengthened the engine block, I think, to suit they, – they allowed the, the engine block to be slightly lengthened to suit Honda from memory that made a difference. So just actually making it more give and take rather than kind of being hammered to produce this, produce this, produce this. And, of course, what also helped that year was – McLaren was kind of found out or at least confronted with some some home truths when they struggled on the switch to to Renault engines. Now, it wasn't a question of whether Honda was entirely to blame for what happened in the McLaren years or McLaren was, but what was absolutely categorically proved was that McLaren had a lot more problems than it thought it did and then it made out it did. And obviously they almost felt they had one of the best cars, but it was being held back by the engine. But it, it was interesting because quite a, a few, I remember James Key saying this as well, and a few of the other teams sort of privately talking about it, that the the data they had, their analysis based on the engine performance, they didn't think the Honda engine performance even in 17 was as bad as it looked. And you're hearing this more and more and more. And I remember James Key saying it, and there's a bit of me thinking, well, you would say that, but it's also, you're not the only person saying this, and there are some people who have no motivation to say this, saying it. And so it proved, of course, Pierre Gasly's fourth place at Bahrain was the real moment where you thought, well, this is uh, this is impressive. And yeah, I think it was Canada was that key upgrade. I think basically Red Bull's mindset was if that Canada upgrade pre- performs as is predicted, that's the point where we basically green light this. And, and so it so it proved. So yeah, really uh, really bold move by Red Bull. You could say it was it was a, a win win because the worst outcome was Honda doesn't work and they would lost their Renault engine that wasn't really working for them anyway. So uh, yeah, and that of course meant Scott that. It wasn't very long before we got that first Honda F1 victory for 13 years. That was Max Verstappen's win in 2019 Austrian Grand Prix. Really emotional moment for the manufacturer. How big a deal was that breakthrough, especially as it came, what, a season and a half after parting company with McLaren? Yeah, it was huge. And um, obviously they had the the, the podium on the on the debut with, with, with Red Bull in Australia, but things had gone a bit, things had been a bit trickier in the few races after that. Uh, Red Bull hadn't, quite got the car in the sweet spot what was the change that year that was the front wing changes wasn't it and I think Red Bull had a bit of difficulty with that to begin with um Honda's initial spec at the start of 2019 was obviously a constant improvement and was genuine progress from the 2018 power unit but it wasn't until the the second and then especially the third spec, which was introduced, I think, the race before Austria in France that really started to move things along. It benefited from um, a collaboration with the uh, Honda Jet division that had also played a key part in a really important MGUH upgrade in 2018 that really got their MGUH struggles under control. What we were saying way before with McLaren in 17, that that MGUH problem dogged Honda for, for for years. They finally got that under control in late 2018. They then made a further improvement with the ch- turbocharger for the spec free power unit that had a cautious introduction in France in 2019. But then they sort of, I want to say, 
they wouldn't describe it like this, but they basically then opened the taps a little bit more for the engine. They ran it in a bit more of an aggressive mode in, in Austria and it culminated in this, uh, in this victory in, um, also like just not the most straightforward of ways, quite a spectacular race win as well. One late on after Max, Max looked like he'd thrown it away at the start and just this absolute outburst of emotion, all of this that Honda had gone through over the last few years, uh, an outcome that I reckon many within the project thought would never come, uh, a race win, let alone fighting for championships again. But even that 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 first race win was absolutely huge. And the fact that it, it came wrapped up in everything like um, it being Red Bull's home race, there were a lot of important people from Honda there that day as well um, that were guests of Red Bull. So it was just... It was just validation for almost everybody, for for Honda, for Red Bull, for Verstappen. Toro Rosso took a huge amount of pride in seeing it happen as well. So even though it was one win, you could see what it meant to them. And obviously when Max got on the podium, you saw he did the thing where he uh, pointed at the, the the Honda badge on his, um, on, on his race suit, which is still something that even when I was speaking to Yamamoto in Abu Dhabi in... Um, at the end of the 2021 season, his face still absolutely lights up with a beaming smile when he thinks of Max standing on the podium that day. So that first win in Austria is has come to represent an awful lot about the Red Bull Honda project. And of course, that wasn't the only win that year. There were victories in uh, Germany and Brazil as well for Max Verstappen. And I think what was most remarkable about this period, Mark, is how quickly the, the storyline effectively turned from is Honda going to be good enough for Red Bull to suddenly it coming back to the question of well when will Red Bull produce a car that's good enough to take on Mercedes because though Honda wasn't quite there with Mercedes it, it felt kind of within realistic incremental gains of being able to get to to that sort of level didn't it so the, the question mark almost went away from the the engine largely and, and suddenly it was on Red Bull's capability which is an amazing turnaround it was and it was very much part of a, a very exciting you know when you prospect because you know has Red Bull got the capability to to run at the front? Yes, of course it has. We know we know it's won four consecutive championships before the hybrid era, um, and has is Max Verstappen capable of you know taking on Lewis Hamilton? Yes, he absolutely is. He's, he's of that caliber. It was obvious. So all, all of a sudden you've got this you know the the the, the three sort of components of a, a successful championship campaign they they're in place. They're just not properly firing on on full yet but the the honda the honda part of that equation was just making strides upon strides so that you knew really if um if just red bull can nail the car and nail the aerodynamics it's it's game on and uh we finally got it but a, a couple of years later yeah, that was the thing, of course. Twenty twenty was a, a a year of crushing dominance for Mercedes. In the end, just two wins for Red Bull. Only really Abu Dhabi was one on complete pace merit, should we say? Because the seventieth anniversary Grand Prix at Silverstone was was down to the way they were using uh, the tyres, with Mercedes having all sorts of of struggles. But but it meant that we ended up with this kind of countdown, didn't we? Because Honda's withdrawal was announced in late 2020, October time, I think it was. That was all down to the need to focus on new technologies, electrification, etc. But it did trigger a really big push with the 21 engine, some ideas originally slated for 2022. So, Mark, when you look at 21, how good was the Honda power unit and how big a part did it play in Verstappen's title triumph beyond the obvious answer of the car wouldn't have gone very far if it didn't have an engine in it? (laughs) 
It was a very significant step better than what was already a pretty solid power unit, like a step change better in energy recovery and deployment, um, much reduced cooling needs, so you know, the, the car could be more tightly packaged. And, and size, it was just um, is it probably an equally big step to, the, to that made by Red Bull itself on the aerodynamic side. So, yeah, that was the, the final piece of the jigsaw that both, both entities back to contesting for, for world titles. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 it might, never have, we might never have seen the light of day, that, that engine, because it, it, was, it was originally slated for 21, but that was when 21 was going to be the introduction of the new aero. And when that um, was postponed to 2022, so was the engine. And it was only sort of brought out, you know, by the um, the, the the fact that they, you know, they, they desperately didn't want to go out on 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 this low note, and and they had potentially something, you know, fantastic that would never see the light of day. So the, that that was a big internal push from the racing guys to to get that um, brought forward, and it, it was, um, yeah. I mean, I think initially the early part of the season. It was near as damn it as on equal on par with Mercedes, but actually slightly better in terms of deployment, which is where the twenty engine had lacked a little bit. It would it would um, clip tended to clip earlier than the Mercedes. Um, I think probably by the end of the season, the Mercedes was back ahead, but that was that was that was masked a little bit by the the, the fact that Merck were replacing engines and Honda weren't. But it's yeah, I mean, it was a terrific engine, it's a terrific power unit. It's incredibly reliable. It suffered very little performance drop off with mileage, and it was um, quick and compact. It was a, a beautiful engine. Yeah, it was the it was the final step that that Honda needed to take. Basically, the impetus to commit to this engine after all for 2021 was the advantage Mercedes had when the 2020 season belatedly started in Austria in July 2020. I think Red Bull and Honda had quite good expectations for their car and engine package in total, but also in those individual components. And then, as we know, Red Bull had a pretty rude, rude awakening about where its car was in 2020. But also Honda realised that Mercedes had made a really good step with its 2020 power unit. And they knew that they wouldn't be able to win the title in 2021 if they didn't overhaul the engine. So it was a massive change. Um, it was an incredibly ambitious timescale once it actually got, you know, full green light committed to. We're talking, I think, a matter of four or five months to turn it from concept to engine ready for pre-season testing. Um, and it ticked every box. Um, it was it was better with the, the DRS, but the main changes were to the internal combustion engine. They made it um shorter so then obviously as a result smaller more compact but they completely changed the way they were trying to um invoke the combustion process which basically made it produce more power but they found a way to do that without compromising the the ERS output which was fantastic but they also were working on they'd spent a lot of time in 2020 working on what they could finally see were proper lingering weaknesses small details like the um the mapping and the software situ- uh, set up for the starts, um, which had been a problem, especially for Verstappen in 2019 and 20, had been quite weak. But that was resolved for 2021 as well. That, like Mark said, they were no, it, PU was no longer clipping 
uh, as badly as it, as it had been in, in the past. Um, reliability, which Honda was adamant in the second half of 2019, Honda was adamant it had a power unit that was capable of doing seven Grand Prix weekends, which was uh, enough at the time. That's what you wanted. 21 race calendar. You want each race on average to do seven events. And, but, but the reliability, which they'd built up and up and up, that had a massive test in 21 because it was this whole new concept. It was such an overhaul done in such a small amount of time that the potential to get that wrong and undo all of that reliability progress was actually quite high. But the, it turns out Honda had the most reliable engine of anyone in 2021. You know, without the max crash at Silverstone and was uh, Perez had the damage in Hungary, didn't he? Which completely, I think, would he lose like all the water from the rad or something like that after with all of that damage? Without the only reason they needed extra changes in 2021 was because of accident damage, and they believed that they would have done the whole season on on the free power units. I think that would have made them the only manufacturer to do that. So, just it, it's just crazy to think that they started the season with what looked like a more powerful engine than Mercedes. They ended it with the most reliable engine of anyone and a world title with Verstappen. It's hard. It, is honestly, in sometimes it's hard to believe that's the same project, isn't it? <laughs> that was so bad just a few seasons before. Well, that's the amazing thing when you step back and look at the whole arc of Honda's fourth coming in F1. Mark, just one very hypothetical question. We've talked about how circumstances led to that more aggressive push with the engine and making sure that the 21 engine that was made, the 22 engine, was brought back into 21. Do you think that without the the kick of that closing door and the fact that it wasn't some nebulous far off we'll we'll climb this mountain in the next X years that it's like right we do it in twenty one or not at all? Do you think that gave them the kick they needed to get the the kind of risk reward balance correct? Yeah, I think there might definitely be an uh, an element of that, just that extra impetus, that extra spark, and that extra demand, and you know, sort of a more of a like a we're in a we're in an emergency situation and we need to react. Um, I, I definitely think that 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 played a part in um, in, in why why they had such a strong season in twenty one. Yeah, and of course, Scott Honda is gone, which you're beginning to come to terms with. But its power unit package does live on as the Red Bull powertrain. Historically, when manufacturers have pulled out and their engine technology has continued to be used, it's not gone that well. Mechachrome Supertech continuation Renaults in uh, post-97 spring to mind. They were decent engines, but they were never at the, the level that the old Renaults were relative to the opposition. So should we expect this to be any different? Yeah, I I um, I don't see any reason why this shouldn't have the performance of Honda still being in Formula 1 because the engine has been reworked for 2022. It's been optimised for the new 10% ethanol fuels that are being introduced, so that's required some uh, evolution on the combustion engine. There will inevitably have been things about the 21 power unit because it has such a short timeline of development and validation that they probably have found things that actually this could be improved. And Honda was absolutely committed to doing this. They told Red Bull very early, we're still going to take control of this um, adaptation and development for 2022 they basically developed the 2022 engine as if it would be a honda works engine so as if they were continuing and it's not just a case of hit they're handing over 10 ready-made full ready-to-go brilliant mega engines to red bull and saying right good luck with these they're also going to be maintaining them for red bull this year probably beyond for at least a year or two as well they're going to be assembling them um, in Japan as well. Um, so 
there, there is still going to be a lot of Honda involvement in the key areas to make the the engine run, basically. So we'd have no reason to doubt the level that the engine's going to be performing at, and we have no reason to doubt the um, I don't know the best way to put it, but like the not the build quality, but the installation quality. If you see what I mean, like the the competence around putting the engine together and actually fitting it to the car isn't going to change. So there's no reason to think that they're going to start running it incorrectly. So I don't really see any reason why one of the best engines on the grid last year wouldn't be a very potent engine again this year. Also, the um, in, in contrast to those early examples, we, we have effectively um, a frozen spec, so the other ones aren't going to suddenly be keep developing and developing, which is what happened last time with those customer projects. Yeah, exactly. And combined with the fact this is actually a 22 Honda engine, they've they've put effort into it, haven't they? So it's not just the kind of end of 21 engine frozen in perpetuity. There's a there's a real step there. So yeah, I think if Red Bull's not in a title fight this year, it probably won't be down to the work that Honda's done or its powertrain side have done. But overall, a shame Honda's gone, but the fact they stuck with it, Mark, and the fact they did get a driver's championship out of it, just missed out on the constructors, but it was perfectly possible for them to do so. It was close enough that it was it was feasible. It's it's a hell of a redemption story, isn't it? Oh, yeah, just just beautiful, really. And it would have been so sad that, that, that Honda's, um, you know, they've got this glorious history in, in, in Formula One and uh, with, um, with McLaren, you know, last time. Um, and then it's... For it to have just petered out like that, you know, even even when it um, withdrew at the end of 08, it, at least it had a Grand Prix victory to its name, and it, and it was a competitive power unit. Um, but uh, yeah, this it would have been very sad if uh, if it had just sort of petered petered out, and because it's it, it it is Honda, and it still has um, huge respect in uh, in in the racing world. It ultimately did turn into the program it was always meant to be when when they were talking it up before the 2015 season this was ultimately the end goal it just um it took a very very unexpected long and winding road to get to that point and it's nice because you know we started talking about this with a couple of sort of personal anecdotes about Honda and the people involved in the project and as you pointed out i think in response to those ed there is ultimately a very strong human element here all those all those jokes in 2015, all of those digs, all of the criticism, lots of people poking fun at Honda from for for three seasons. You know, there were there were real people at the other end of that, on the receiving end of that. A lot, an, an awful lot of work had gone in to these people to have their competency ridiculed, basically for for two or three years. Um, and those same people, effectively, have now created a title-winning engine. So you know, it's like when I spoke to Yamamoto at the end of last year, he said that when there was this doubt within the company, could Honda really get out of this? You know, was there any light at the end of the tunnel? Because they didn't see that for for some time. Ultimately, Yamamoto said he had he felt such responsibility for especially the people at Sakura because he, while he's not an engineer himself, he came from the R and D side. In Sakura, so he knew a lot of the people there and knew what they were like. And he just felt such a sense of responsibility and loyalty to them. He was like, I can't let this project end because they're better than this and they, they're working so hard. And for that, those people to have had the chance 
to push and see that project through to the very end and show what they're capable of. I think it's just a nice human story, as well as a technological story and a sporting story. It's a nice human story that those people got their redemption given the lows that they had to go through. And as a final question, Scott, the last two Honda absences from Formula One have been quite short. So do you think we might see Honda back in, I don't know, six years' time or something, or do you think that they're very much focused on other things for the long haul? No, I think uh, I think what they're doing at the moment will be a short-term thing in terms of stopping them doing something like Formula One. I would imagine that they have already had quite a few conversations about if not with if not if not withdrawing or, or if not reversing the decision, working out how they can reverse it in the future by re-entering. You know, or what are the twenty twenty six regs really going to look like? That sort of thing. So, I think we will see Honda back in Formula One in the medium term. Mark, would you agree with that? Do you think Honda will be back? I don't know. I hope so. Um, I, I'm, I'm not as confident as Scott. Just, just in the way that um, automotive trends are going and and what the relationship to Formula One is going to be. But um, yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Formula One's certainly better off with Honda in it than out of it. So let's hope there is a return down the line. Thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes for your insight. If you'd like to read a little bit more about Honda and F1, check out Scott's piece that was published on January the 3rd on therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen, headlined, There Was No Light, How Honda Emerged from an F1 Abyss. And if you like our podcast and would like to help out, it'd be great if you could leave a review on your podcast supplier of choice, as that will help others find the Race F1 podcast. And on the subject of podcast, Series 5 of Bring Back V10s is now up and running with the very first episode on the 1998 British Grand Prix and Michael Schumacher's controversial victory amid stewarding controversy. But if video is more your thing, head to our channel on YouTube. That's all from us for now, but we'll be back soon with everything you need to know in the build-up to the 2022 F1 season. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.